Marcy, there's something on transcendentalism. I got that. Um, and did you all get the poems? Let's say a prayer. Would anybody, does anybody have anybody to include in our prayers tonight? I do. I have a coworker, Stephanie. So we need to pray for her and her husband, Brian. Uh, he's in his name before us, I think. He had a heart attack when he was 38, and he's had serious health problems since November, including seizures and loss of oxygen to his brain. He's young. I think he's in his mid forties. Wow. <clears throat> so um, I work with his wife, and she's been out of work, and I know it's hard for her to you know, be helpless. Yep. Stephanie. Stephanie. And his name? Brian. Stephanie and Brian. Thanks. Anybody else? Hey, you can still have Jesse of the list. He's showing. They've reduced his tumors, or I guess all his lesions in his stomach are, are, are shrunk and gone, and, but, and they're on another stage of uh, chemo, but uh, he's certainly progressing, and he sounds good, but I haven't seen him. I know he's lost a lot of weight. And Every time you describe him, it sounds like he just keeps going. Yeah. He, he is. I mean, yeah. the guy is just amazing. I mean, he's, he's Greek, and, you know. He's he Greek? A, he's Greek. He had a full head of you know, of absolutely gorgeous thick hair. I mean, I mean, I'm sure he's losing it because he's, he's wearing a hat. What's his name again, Bob? Jesse. Jesse what? Jesse Labus. Labus? Labus, L-A-B-U-S. Labus. Labus, I guess, in Greek. Or... And Stephanie and Brian? I have to write, it's just my mind is more and more going. Um, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, particularly in Mass this morning. Your very life itself that we carry, um, your divine life, um, the way it situates us with your kingdom in this world. Help us to bring your kingdom here, make it present. Um, strengthen us in our struggles to do that, to live with you in your kingdom against ourselves, to put our sins away, um, to grow in our trust in you, and to bring that to all that we, particularly all that we do with each other. Um, I ask pardon for our sins, all of us, strengthen us in our effort, help us to carry our sins with us and put them away as we go. Um, Ask for a special blessing on Jesse. Continue to watch over him. Um, um, give him strength. Um, help him to find a support for what he seems to do so well himself. Um, and help him to get well. Ask for a special care for Stephanie and especially for her husband, Brian. Yeah. Watch over him, surround him with your protection. Um, um, give the doctors clear understanding, clear sight 
um, and sure hands in any work that they do with him. Um, whatever happens, let, um, let the situation be an occasion for um, both of them and um, their loved ones to grow closer to you. Help us to put away those things in ourselves that get in the way of being with you. Um, and help us to find, help us to grow in our understanding um, and um, in our heart's capacities to feel from all that we take from these readings. We are grateful for this time together. Um, amen. Okay, Moby Dick. I want to just um, briefly, um, a couple of things, I want to just lay out a couple of things for you to think about as you get started on your reading, so you're just not going into this cold. A couple of things. I, I, I remember mentioning this before, but I... I've not gone into it, and it's not been as relevant until this point because this is the first time we've met um, a novel. Everything we've read up until this time has been an epic: the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy. We went from that, from those epics, into Shakespeare. Um, there are lots of people, including myself, that look at Moby Dick as an epic. But truthfully speaking, it would be, I think, more accurate to see it as as a novel in Mod and it's being modern in some ways and epic in the way that it treats a modern theme. And I'll come back to that. I don't want to spend a lot of time in it. Remember, the epic, the epic um, always dealt with the, uh, the actions of the gods and the affairs of men. The epic always centered on a people, a particular people, the Greeks or the Romans or the Italians, but in Dante's world, you know the modern world. Um, the novel is more modest in some ways, we can say. It doesn't have that grand cosmic view of things. The epic had always, all, almost always, three fields. The heavens, Olymp Mount Olympus, the gods, the earth, the underworld. Right? There were always three dimensions. We always looked at the gods intervening in the affairs of men, whatever was going on men, whatever disorders they had to face, and the underworld, the dead. So those three domains made up the cosmos of the epic world. That continued over into Dante, right? Heaven, the, the Paradiso, um, Purgatory, um, the earthly, and Hell, the underworld, where the dead go, and, or, or the fallen go. So Dante was an epic writer in a sense that he carried forward the epic tradition in lots of ways. We can say that Dante's the first modern we can even say he's the first novelist, if we wanted. I don't think that would be quite accurate, but, but you'll see why if you think about it. In the, in the ancient epics, the poet always spoke of somebody else, and it always spoke in a heroic language, heroic Greek, Latin. Dante was the first epic poet to write in the vernacular. He took the common speech, and he took himself in the present as the subject of his epic. In all the other epics, the epic poets looked to a past, who went back into an idealized past, and I've argued that what the epic heroes did was bring that epic action into the present, 
in some ways, that's one of the ways they anticipated Christ, that they, every one of them dealt with these disorders, but in a way that overcame them, they showed something that the people of that time didn't know, that there were all these disorders, but there was a way out of them uh, in our human nature and with the help of the gods. So the epic always had this grand cosmic vision. Dante's the first one who carries that way of looking at things forward. It's still an epic, but he brings it into the present, takes himself as a hero. Ishmael, Melville's going to do that with Ishmael. Ishmael's speaking for us. He's an American. He's in the present. Even though this is 19th century, he's, he's an American speaking for us now. So Moby Dick looks back to that epic world, but it also looks forward the way a novel does. The novels are always more empirical, more secular. They don't deal with God's intervening in the affairs of men. That's a, it's almost a principle of the novel. If you look at Don Quixote, I mean, if you look at the beginnings of the novel, just take those beginnings. Don Quixote, Defoe in Robinson Crusoe, Fielding, all those early novelists, Jane Austen, Thackeray, um, George Eliot, Dickens, you know, if you take the really great novelists in the 18th, 19th century, they all deal with human affairs, no gods, and they have a kind of journalistic affair. It just describes humans doing things. Um, so the novel's always secular, more empirical. We don't have a divine order um, of, the, um, of the kind that we saw in the epics. And, and I think, I, I, I'd be surprised if you didn't feel it, in Shakespeare. You know the gods are present in Hamlet. And even there, heaven was ordinate, remember? Hamlet has the sense that something's happening, that the gods are watching over him. Um, and in Winter's Tale, same thing. Um, I hope it becomes clear today that some providential action is taking place. So after the Renaissance, after Shakespeare, we enter a scientific world, and the novel is something new. That's what novel means, new. We've entered into a new way of looking things. Now, having said that, I want to qualify that, because once we get to Melville and Hawthorne, but certainly Melville and Faulkner, or, or sorry, and Dostoevsky in Russia, and Faulkner in America, I mean, if we, if we continue with, with our plan, we will get to Faulkner, and I think you'll see that Faulkner stays in that same epic mode, because even though he doesn't show the gods, the way the stories unfold make us aware that something else is going on beyond what humans do. So Faulkner and, and Melville are two moderns who carry that epic vision forward into a novel genre. Okay, so just be aware of that. The second thing to think about is that 19th century represents a point of crisis for the West all of the West, that means Europe and America, and particularly America. And an interesting thing is taking place then that I, I just want to take a second with. If you look at all of the American novels before Melville and Hawthorne, you, you'll, you'll be aware that the authors are writing in an idiom that's English. The diction is sophisticated, it's articulate, it, there has a spirit of decorum, of formality to it, that's English. Because we're still English in character, yeah? So the early American novelists are carrying forward an, an English speech and an English way of looking at things. 
So there's a crisis going on now that I'll come to I'll come back to it in a second. But the interesting thing that's happening here with Melville and, and writers who are writing it at his time is that America is for the first time in its history becoming self-consciously American. And they understand, every great writer who's writing in that period understands they won't be able to do what they've been given to do until they find their own tongue. So one of the greatest concerns of American writers since the 19th century is to find their own tongue, not just to be carrying on an English tongue, an English language, the formality, the decorum, the idiom, you know, the inflections, all that make up the English language. So if you were to set Hawthorne, I mean uh, Melville, against, let's say, Cooper, or an earlier novelist, you'd immediately be aware of a difference. Ishmael is self-consciously American. Um, and his whole vision of things is American. So the, the crisis that's taking place that gets focused in Moby Dick takes a particularly American form. Now the crisis in the 19th century is basically this. For two centuries, two ways of reading the world have been moving towards each other, towards a they're in a collision course. One of them is scientific, since the 16th century, and the other is biblical, which is, as you know, has been, gone, been going on for centuries. I mean, it, it begins before Christ with the Old Testament and then carries through the Middle Ages and up into modern times. But under the influence, under the pressure of this new way of looking at the world introduced by the sciences, those two ways of reading come into conflict. Because one of them deals with final ends, and the other one says there are no final ends, can't deal with them, that we can only know things in a certain way. Um, that scientific way actually gets reinforced some by the Age of Enlightenment, because in the Age of Enlightenment, all the Enlightenment philosophers, French, English, European, <coughs> claim that um, reason is sufficient to explain everything. Scientific reason is sufficient. That anybody holding um, religious beliefs is superstitious. The Enlightenment world tries to do everything it can, as you know, to get rid of the church. That's that, that period of Enlightenment, 18th century, particularly with the French writers, French philosophers. So, what Melville's dealing with in Moby Dick is this crisis. What's happening here in Moby Dick is that he is dealing with um, the crisis of a civilization. It's the same thing that Homer dealt with in his time, Virgil, Dante, in, and in that sense I'm going to say that Melville's prophetic in the way that we've been talking about artists as being prophetic. He's showing us something about the American culture, something about ourselves that's really important for us if, if, if we're to have self-knowledge, if we're to come to understand ourselves as we are. As a people different from the English or the French or the you know, whatever other people we're going to compare ourselves to. One last thing and then I just want to do some reading. One of the most major things to keep in mind here, this is so important I can't underscore it and I, and I never hear anybody talking about it, it's just stunning to me, just stunning to me. What's the one great theme that all ancient epics and the Divine Comedy have in common? The whole matter of justice and the disorders that create injustices among a people, right? That was there in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy. 
every epic deals with some disorder, some injustice that's become a part of a way of a people's way of living so that they don't even see it anymore. Yes? That's, that's why I'm calling these words prophetic, because they're helping us to see things we don't ordinarily want to see. So at the center of every one of those epics is this disorder in a people. The epic poet is the one who tells a story to help us see what that is and what it, the cost, what it takes to answer that disorder. Whether it's Achilles in his death or Odysseus heroics going home, Virgil in struggling to found a new city, or Dante in his journey to the new paradise, you know, whatever it is. At the center of every one of them is some national people disorder. And some person who's been called out, who has a divinely appointed task to bear those disorders in a way to help bring a goodness out of them. He's divinely appointed because the gods are working with him. He couldn't do it by himself. Because what's needed is divine help, whether it's the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, or the Divine Comedy. Yeah? We all know that, right? So at the center is this concern for justice. Dante introduces love as a, as a divine element that, that, that helps complete this whole quest for justice. So that in Divine Comedy, we see justice and love brought together. We've we talked about all of that, yeah? That's the great epic, that's the great epic theme. It's the great epic theme of Moby Dick. The, the central theme, it's the one thing that motivates Ishmael and the draw, I'm sorry, Ahab. It's the one thing that motivates Ahab. This whale bit off his leg. It crippled him. It attacked him. And he wants revenge. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante. Um, <clears throat> he wants revenge. And everybody aboard the, the Pequod joins into that because every member of that ship feels an identity with Ahab because they themselves have suffered injustices all their lives. So there's that opening, if you've gotten there, that you, you know there's that opening where Ahab comes out and draws, in fact, it's, it's much like a Catholic mass. He draws out um, that chalice, put, puts blood in it, and, and almost like a... Um, a liturgical ceremony of worship. He draws everybody into that circle and, and has them commit themselves to engaging in this quest with him. Okay? Ishmael said, more than anybody, I was one with him. So at the very beginning of the story, Ishmael commits himself to that quest. Very gradually, you'll see, he'll begin to distance himself. Over the course of this story, there'll be a number of peripatias. <laughs> turns for him, conversion moments. If you read my essay, you'll see that there, there are a number of moments when he turns, when something, ha he talks about his splintered heart softening. It's almost like love enters into him and he begins to distance himself from um, Ahab's quest. Now here's the amazing thing about this quest. Up until the 19th century, the object of the injustice was always another person, somebody who was bad. <clears throat> Hector, the suitors, Turnus, you know, in Italy. Um, there are all sorts of bad people in Dante's world. There's no specific one, but, you know, he's surrounded by bad. And in Dante's world, he is his worst enemy until a certain point, because you know we learn two-thirds up the, through the Divine Comedy, Dante himself was damned. 
that he was on the way to being damned when the story begins. So, so what's different here? This is amazing. What's different here is that for the first time in the whole epic tradition, the object of vengeance is nature. It's a whale. It's a natural creature, not a human being. So what Melville is dealing with is a changed way of reading the world that's made nature inherently evil. As you read through this, you'll find all those passages in which Ahab says, is this whale the image of some malevolent force? Is this something demonic and disguised here in nature? Because what's entered the world, I think, I think largely through the Reformation movement and the theology, Calvin and others, is that there is this inherent evil in the world. It's, it, it's like a throwback to Manichaeism. The things of nature are evil. For the first time since the epic tr tradition began, we're going to be looking at a man involved in a quest dealing with nature and a whole attitude towards nature. So what Melville is laying before us is this whole way of standing to the natural world that's undergone a radical change from anything that happened before it. Okay, so, yeah, Mark. You just mentioned uh, the, the object of vengeance is nature, which was the whale, and that nature is evil. Is there, are, you trying to tell, are you saying that he's looking at all of nature as, as quote-unquote evil, or well, this particular act in this particular way? Insofar as, insofar as this is a whale, it's representative of a force of nature. It happens to be the largest creature, in, but it's representative of that. It's a thing of nature. The point here is that it's not a human being. Have we ever read an, a, a, a story like this in this in our time together? All the injustices that we're concerned with have to do with human injustices. This is the first time the whole question of justice gets focused in a natural creature. And Ahab is convinced, I mean, what's, what's going on with Ahab is he's trying to determine whether there's a mal malevolent, sinister aspect to nature. And he's engaged in that quest. So what we're, the whole point of this is we're entering, a, we're, we're entering a novel dealing with a world that has radically changed from anything that came before us. It's a whole way of standing in the natural order. Now, nature has always been a backdrop for everything we've done. It was there in, in Homer, it was there in Virgil, it was there in Divine Comedy. But this is the first time nature has taken on a malevolent aspect. So we're, we're, Melville is dealing with this crisis. It's a whole different way of standing in the world. What's he got to tell us? What will he show us? That's what we're going to be looking at. Last thing before I, before I just stop with some readings. Another great thing. Um, if you read my essay, you'll see that one of my arguments at the end is that, I really believe this, that what Mel, uh, Melville's, not, Melville's not Catholic, for sure. I think he's probably anti-Catholic, if anything, if you read the book. It seems to me that he's coming out of a Protestant world that's in collapse, so he can't turn back to it for consolation or comfort or strength. That whole worldview, that whole way of looking at the world is coming into question. Lots of people look at Melville as having a quarrel with God, that he's not religious. So some people read this as an anti-religious book, that he's angry with God. I don't believe that at all, and I hope I can, I want to put that out, whether you agree with it or not at the end. but. But here's the interesting thing. Um, 
Ishmael is doing exactly what Dante did in the Divine Comedy. He starts out in this quest um, to get back at Moby Dick, Julian's Ahab, but as he goes along this quest, he begins to change. And what we see as he engages in this quest is, <laughs> I'm going to put it in terms of the logos, it's not, that's not a word, uh, Melville. It, actually, the critics who <clears throat> argue that he's angry at God are putting forward the, the argument that this is actually, um, what's it called? Uh, an, um, it, it's, a, it's a stance that's um, anti-logo-centered. That is, the whole logo-centered worldview is the Christian worldview that carries from the classical world all the way up to the modern science, logo-centered, the logos is there. Lots of modern critics are saying this is an anti-logocentric book. That it's actually against the word, the, the, the intelligibility of things in nature. I don't know how they can come to that conclusion. The amazing thing about Ishmael, he doesn't look at anything without finding meaning everywhere. He's doing exactly what Dante does, except in contrast to Ahab, he finds goodness and meaning everywhere in creation. So two things in my mind, take him back to Dante. It's almost as if, indirectly, whether he knew it or not, Melville is a continuator of the Christian tradition that ended with Dante in the Middle Ages. In two ways. Dante, remember, was a pilgrim who underwent this journey, and at the end of the journey came back to write about it. So what he writes, there's two Dantes. There's Dante the, journey, the journeyman, the journeyer, and the poet. <clears throat> And it's important to keep that in mind because one of the things we have to ask ourselves, and I'm not sure we can ever answer it definitively, is how much does the poet learn as he sits down to write about the journey he had? Because he clearly didn't understand everything that was happening at the time. You all know that from writing. When we sit down to write things, very often things come to us that we don't see. Ishmael's in that same position. The Ishmael, remember this, the Ishmael that we're reading has already undergone this journey. And it's interesting because the Ishmael at the beginning of the story seems to be this really innocent, I don't know what to call him, fool. He does, has no idea what he's in for, not a clue. He has no idea that he's going to end up on a ship um, whose captain is a madman leading everybody on this mad quest, you know, in which he commit, to which he commits himself. He is innocent, foolish, angry at the world. He's getting away from some things. All of this will become clear. And he gets caught up in this quest, much like all of us do in our work worlds today, when we get committed to something and then years later, so how did I get here? What am I doing? What's the meaning of life? You know, that this is Ishmael's story. So remember that there's two Ishmaels. There is the journeyer, the one we're going to follow, but something happens in this journey that's important enough for him to come back and tell it. In that sense, he's like Dante, and also in that sense, he's like Jonah. In fact, the parallels between him and Jonah are stunning. One of the opening passages, one of the opening chapters, deals with the Father Mapple is going to give the story in his sermon. He's going to give the Jonah story. It seems to me that Melville is saying, this is Jonah, this is his Jonah figure. He will be spit out at the end. I'm giving it away. But, but it forces on us this question. If this is a Jonah figure, what is he coming back to tell us? 
What is it that's important for us as Americans to, to know, to learn about our stance in this modern world? What does he come back to tell us? Is there a divine hand here at work? Okay, so that's just a, to lay out some important things for you to just keep in mind as you, as you start your reading. It's a wonderful book. I really would encourage you all to read it. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary book, actually. It's funny. It's challenging. It, it, it pushes us into philosophic areas that most people aren't used to going. It's going to deal with um, really complex theological problems. And it's modern. It speaks um, very much to us as Americans. You mentioned that the epics dealt with the gods, and though not this particular novel happens to deal with nature, and how it was never. I mean, when I think about it, I think it was the same exact thing. Because the gods worked through nature the sun crossing the sky, the right. evil winds, the, right. you know, every, right. the stuff in the sea, or right. whatever. Right. It's the same thing. So if you sit there and say, now I'm going to complain about nature as being something wrong with it. Okay, it was the same thing back then. It was just the gods working through nature. And so now we're saying, okay, we don't believe in the gods anymore because we're smarter, right? So now it's just nature. So it seems to me almost an attack on what they have learned through the scientific process. Because you can't blame the gods anymore, right? You can't blame, you know, even though the, you know, the god made the sun or, you know, whatever, you have to blame something because we know we're smarter now, right? We're scientific method, we're, you know, we figured it out with reason and all this. We can't blame the gods because we know that's silly. So now we have to blame something else, so it has to be nature. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I hear a question there, Mark. I, well, I, 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 I guess, aren't they the same thing? Isn't this, this, uh, this nature is evil, this force of nature, the same thing as what the gods would have been in the ancient ethics. Except in, one, in, in, in a couple of respects, and I, I'm, I'm, right now I want to be careful because we've got to get to Winter's Tale, so yeah, I'm going to yeah, cut okay, this. Right, I want to read. No, no, but let me, let me try to... Except in a couple of respects, and one major one that comes immediately to mind. Remember that in the, in a, in the ancient paganistic world, the gods couldn't be separated from nature. They were, I mean, exactly as you described it, they were a part of nature. Um, the Christian God is understood to be transcendent and imminent, outside of nature and in. But he's not in it the way the gods were in it for the pagan people. He transcends it and he works through nature, but we understand that he's working through something he's created that he's apart from. So his mark is everywhere in nature, he works through it, but he allows a freedom in what we call secondary causes. He's the first cause. We, we live in a, we operate in a world of secondary causes. There's contingencies and freedoms. So he works with that freedom and can help bring things about, but he's not as caught in it or directed by it or, or governed in it the way it would have been true for the ancient world. Let me leave it there because it's a, it's a hard, I mean, you're raising a really tough question, but, but um, what's the thing I wanted to, um, one of the things that Melville's dealing with is the Protestant theology that everything's predetermined so that God sent these things in motion and man has no free will that things are worked out as a matter of fate. Um, and Ahab is bitterly fighting that. He's a product of it. He's, so in Ahab we see a figure who's dealing with Christian 
theologies, some of them we would say as Catholics are, are um, heretical. The notion of predestination we get from Calvin and things like that. Ahab's going to be dealing with everyone because he was raised <coughs> under those theologies. So they, they have a hold of his mind. To, to watch Ahab is, some people it seems to me just unfairly criticizing. He's a tragic hero. But if you don't see that he's a product of that age, that, that he's growing up with this sense that something's inhuman, something's unfair, I mean to use your, that something's wrong in nature, then I think we're missing the tragic dimension of this. So um, there are lots of correspondences between this world and the pagan, but there are some fundamental differences. But Melville is dealing um, specifically with those aberrations, these, these questionable aspects of theology that seem so inhuman. That's Ahab's, that's the subject of Ahab's quest. So let me leave it there. That's, that's a really huge, complicated question. Anyway, those are things I just want to put out. If we, can, if we can go on, what I'd like to do is just read a couple of passages to get you going, unless there are other simple questions. <laughs> my, my mind is always drawn towards something simple. I have a simple question. Yeah? Are there any more what we did? Candy, we, there aren't. Um... um there aren't. They're on order. They should be okay. here. We're going to let everybody know when they come in. Okay. Um, if you don't have one and you want to get started, you can, you can borrow mine tonight and bring it back next week, or you just borrow, go to the library and check one out for a week. It's the you person can, that's starting You can easily week, find it person. online and yes. read it there. It's easily found online. Okay. But you can't etch it online. No, you can't you do can that. But I know, if you don't, I know. Have, really if you don't have a book, <laughs> right. And you can go to the library too. I mean, you're always. You can't write in the library books either. I can. <laughs> my, my son, this is really interesting. My son, who was at UD, Christopher, who was at UD doing his master's several years ago, he was just whatever he was reading. He brought a book to me and showed me the handwriting because he recognized it. <laughs> he, knew, he knew who the writer of this library book was. Thank <laughs> God. Uh, let's start. I want to. I'm going to wait on the Ishmael story, the biblicals, until next week because I'm a little bit late. I want to get going on Wintersdale, but I'll go back to the Ishmael story so that we know. You you all should know that story. Um, um, Sari wanted a child and couldn't conceive, and she asked Abram, her husband, to to meet with um, Hagar, the bondswoman, and. They conceived a son, Ishmael, and, and Sari was outraged when Hagar showed contempt because she had a child, and Sari didn't. Sometime after that, um, Abram gets renamed. God calls him Abraham because he establishes a covenant with him then um, that, that lets him know that he will be the head of nations of nations on the earth so that we know that the, in the beginning of the Jewish line the intent was to gather all the nations together. Um, God comes to uh, Abraham and tells him that he will give him a child through Sarah and she's renamed, she becomes Sarah. So their names change according to these new identities because God lets Abraham know then that that child will be the head of a new nation, a new covenant. 
So Isaac will be the 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 pro, he will be the head of a promised land, a new covenant. Ishmael will become the outcast. He will be outcast. And I'll go into that a little bit more next week because I think there's some really important things to see there. But anyway, just know that this Ishmael is, is, as we know it today, the founder of Islam. This is really crucial to know. Now, I don't think that's how Melville's using him, but I'll raise this question for you. But this Ishmael, Ishmael in the Bible, is the founder of the Islamic people. And God says of him, um, you will be the founder of great nations. And um, I can't remember the, I'll bring it next week, but he says, um, these are not his exact words, and I'm sorry for that, but he says, You'll, you will make war on people everywhere, and people will make war on you. That, he said, you're like a wolf man, almost like an animal man. You'll make war on people, and they'll make war on you. That will be the nature of that tribe, an outcast tribe. That has God's sanction. I mean, we should never forget that. That's God. That's not us. Anyway, this Ishmael, his name, his namesake, is Ishmael in Genesis. So just hold that, hold that in mind when you're, as you're reading, and I'll come back to that. I just want to read a few things here from the opening, if you all can turn to the opening pages of Nebuchadnezzar. Just, I'm going to quickly run through some passages just to get this going so that you hear this, because it's, I love, I love Ishmael. I love what he does. I love his language. Very beginning, chapter 1, Doomings. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, he does not care for precision right now. Having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, Whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off then, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. Bob, you and I have to remember this. When we get close to killing anybody, we just need to go down to the dock and sign up and go aboard a ship. Join the Navy. Join the Navy, that's right. Um, this is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophic flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. There is nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in a degree, some time or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings towards the ocean with me. He talks about this mystical longing that, that people have. Islanders want to get to the sea, even if we're Midlanders, you know, in Kansas or Nebraska, people want to get to the coast so that they can experience the ocean. There's something mystical about the sea. By the way, we'll talk about this later, but remember, almost all of, all of the divine or I mean all the uh, Odyssey takes place at sea. And remember that Athena is never with Odysseus when he's at sea. She's only, and she's the goddess of wisdom. She's only with him when he lands at Phaeacia and other places. He's meeting all of these strange archetypal creatures at sea. So the sea is always an image of something more than the sea. In Dante's Paradiso, he begins the Paradiso saying, Beware 
because I'm going to enter seas that will be too dangerous for most people. Be careful of the bark that you choose because anybody who goes into this too cavalierly will be destroyed because he's going to be dealing with images of grace. Land is our home. That's where we have control, or we think. The sea is an image of mystery, of mutability, things changing, and of grace, and the terrors of grace, the dangers of it. So this whole work will take place at sea. Okay? And here in the opening, he's talking about these mystical longings that we have that draw us towards the seaside, the ocean. Um, go on over a couple of pages. The, the paragraph that begins, Now when I say that I'm in the habit of going to sea whenever I begin to grow hazy. Besides, passengers get seasick, grow quarrelsome, don't sleep at nights, do not enjoy themselves much as a general thing. No, I never go as a passenger, nor though I am sometimes of assault, do I ever go to sea as a commodore or a captain or a cook. I abandon the glory and distinction of such offices to those who like them. For my part, I subordinate all honorable respectable toils, trials, and tribulations of every kind whatsoever. He wants to go as a sailor, an ordinary man. Everything else he rejects. Go on over, um, he, the paragraph begins, what of it if some old hulks of sea captain ordered me about? Do you have that paragraph? No. Yeah, what page is it? Top, Top 33. Top 33, thanks Mark. What of it, if some old hulks of a sea captain orders me to get a broom and sweep down the decks, what does that indignity amount to? By, by the way, one of the, um, Billy Budd, one, Melville's other great work and one of the great American short stories, deals with a, a young man who's, a, who's an Adam figure who is persecuted by this first mate who hates him because he envies him because of his own natural goodness. He provokes him into a fight by having him do humiliating things as a way of putting them down. Think about bosses who do that, who, who are above doing ordinary things that hopefully we're not above doing. But. So here he's dealing squarely with something he's already experienced and written about in a number of his novels because all of them, most of them had to do with um, sea travel, sea journeys. What of it if somebody orders me about to sweep and mop down? What does that indignity amount to weight, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament? Do you think the Archangel Gabriel thinks anything less of me because I promptly and respectfully obey that old hulks in that particular instance? Who ain't a slave? Underline these. I would mark these. Even in a library book. Um, who ain't a slave? Tell me that. Well, then, however the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that it's all right, that everybody else in one way or another served in much the same way, either in a physical or metaphysical point of view, that is. And so the universal thumb is passed around and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. Down, same, next paragraph. Again, I always go to sea as a sailor because they make a point of paying me for my trouble, whereas they never pay passengers a single penny that I ever heard of. On the contrary, passengers themselves must pay, and there is all the difference in the world between pain and being paid. The act of pain is perhaps the most uncomfortable <laughs> infliction that the two orchard thieves entailed upon us. Who are the two orchard thieves? Adam and Eve. So 
Think about this, and this, this is one of the things that makes this an epic. Already here in the opening chapter, we are taken back to the Garden of Eden. So the scope of Melville's story will include mythic time. So time before the fall to the fall forward. Right now he's introducing us to the two orchard thieves. The act of pain is perhaps the most uncomfortable infliction that the two orchard thieves entailed upon us. That is, it's one of the effects of the fall. We don't live in, we don't live in freedom. There's a cost to what we do that we have to suffer now that we didn't in, in the garden. But being paid, what will compare with it? The urban activity with which a man receives money is really marvelous, considering that we so earnestly believe money to be the root of all earthly ills, and that on no account um, um, a moneyed man, and that on no account can a moneyed man enter heaven. Ah, how cheerfully we consign ourselves to perdition. Um, he he begins to question why he went on this quest. What what um, what got a hold of him to do this? And he says in the next paragraph. But wherefore it was that after having repeated he smelt the sea as a merchant sailor, I should now take it into my head to go on a whaling voyage? This the invisible police officer of the fates, who has the constant surveillance of me and secretly dogs me and influences me in some unaccountable way, he can better answer than anyone else, and doubtless my going on this whaling voyage form part of the grand program of providence. Mark, this goes to your question. Just that clearly... Even though this is very comic right now, he's dealing with questions of free will and providence. Whether this was predestined, or let me put it differently, because we've, is, is this a hint that he has a divinely appointed task like Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante? It's all comically put so we can you know, read right by it and not give it a thought, but here he's already raising that question for us. He can better answer than anyone else, and doubtless my going on this whaling voyage formed part of the grand program of providence that was drawn up a long time ago. It came in as a sort of brief interlude and solo between more extensive performances. I take it that this part of the bill must have run something like this. Grand contested election for presidency of the United States. Small letters, whaling voyage by one Ishmael. Big letters, bloody battle in Afghanistan. So he has this little insignificant note on a big newspaper, you know. Um, that's how he imagines it. Though I cannot tell why it was exactly that that the stage managers, the fates, put me down for this shabby part of a whaling voyage when others were set down for magnificent parts in high tragedies and short and easy part in general comedies and jolly parts in farces. Though I cannot tell why this was exactly, yet now that I can recall the circumstances, I think I can see a little into the springs and motives which being cunningly presented to me under various disguises induced me to set about performing the part I did, besides conjoling me into the delusion that it was a choice resulting from my own unbiased free will and discriminating judgment. He went into this thinking this was free will. Is there something predestined? Are the gods working with him? It's all put in a comic light so we can read past this, but here in the opening chapter, Melville's interest, introducing this question of, of how God uses people. Let me just leave it that way. Remember what, what Jonah did, he freely did too, but he also served God at some point. So 
Now remember, this is Ishmael at the very beginning. But this is also the Ishmael who already has completed this thing and is now coming back and partly thinking about what this all meant. Is there a deeper meaning to it than he knew? Did he serve for something? So here in the opening chapter, chapter we've got some of the sort of major themes of Moby Dick, some of the things to keep in your mind as you read. Wonderful book, funny, very funny. Let me stop for a second. I want to I wanna pick up Winter's Tale and read this last, um, this last act and put this to rest. Any questions before? Simple questions. Mark, I'm going to ignore you if you raise your hand. Any, any questions? I'm kidding. I hope you know that. I'm kidding. Any questions about? This is really just to get you going. Is there a prophetic element here? If this is a Jonah figure, I'm, I'm asking this at the outset. If this is a Jonah figure, what does he come back to tell us? More important, more to the point, what has he, this is so, it goes to Winter's Tale so directly, so immediately. What has he come back to help us experience to reconnect us with our world? Let me put that again. How did I say that? That was profound. <laughs> I have to stop. What does he come back to help us ex experience? However I put that. What does he come back to help us experience so that we can renew our relationship with nature, recover something? Because what, what, remember, I, I made this distinction again and again. In philosophy, we read about things. In literature, we experience them. We participate in this whole notion of experiencing something. It's a different kind of knowledge. What, it, what is it that we're going to experience that's so important for us as Americans to recover some, something we've lost? Let me put it that way. Okay, big question to hold in mind. Okay. Okay. Can we finish up Winter's Tale? Can we go ahead? Yep. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. <coughs> Just very, very quickly, a review. Remember, I, in order to help set the stage for the last scene of Winter's Tale where Hermione emerges. She comes to life out of that statue. So I was making the point that Shakespeare is really calling our attention to art, the importance of art, that she emerges from that statue. That Paulina is an artist figure. She's brought everybody in the, in, into the chapel to, to experience this moment. And I made the point then um, which seems to me such a crucial point for us because I, uh, most people don't think about this. I know you've been hearing me um, go over and over it again that as, as art goes, so does culture. When we lose our connection with art, culture, cultures decline. And I made the point last time that if you look at the, the um, Judaic Islamic traditions, 
coming out of, you know, if you look at the whole Judaic descent, historically the line of descent up to the time of Christ, there's, there's very little art. The second commandment forbids the use of images. Um, it's a delicate subject in Judaism. After Christ comes, there's this, and, and, and in the Middle Ages, which continues the classical tradition, the natural tradition, Homer, the poets, you know, Christ comes after that, but we already see the natural instinct of man is to be creative, to produce these great works of art that are self-reflective, that help us to look at ourselves. That gets picked up and carried forward with Christ and deepened because Christ sends the, the paraclete, the spirit back, to continue his work. So we, what we see in the Middle Ages is this rich tradition of art developing and carried over into the Middle Ages, I mean the modern world. If you look at the Jewish and Islamic traditions, you don't find that. You find an art, particularly in Islam, that turns in on itself, that's very um, labyrinth-like, very mosaic. It's like it's caught in a law. In Christianity, it's important for us to learn about ourselves so the Spirit's always at work. And if you, if you, if you step into that tradition, you can see things unfolding historically. If you look at the East, particularly in Eastern Orthodox religions, the art tradition remains in the past. It's platonic and geometric. It doesn't move forward. And one of the most important things that gets carried forward in Christianity is this sense of a resurrection. That if, a, if art is going to reflect the workings of the spirit, it's, it's got to do what the ancient classics did. It's, it's got to bring man to a point of, of renewal, of learning to see that no matter how bad things are, no matter how bad, no matter how great the evil that we experience, God is at work helping to bring good out of it. So that the really great artists have been doing that all along. Okay? And that's peculiar to the West and is peculiar to Christianity for obvious reasons. Because God is at work. God, God is the artist, if that isn't clear. Remember in the Divine Comedy when Dante sat down with Virgil and I think it's the 11th, can or 11th canto in hell and they're talking about the classification? He said... Um, God created nature, and art is God's grandchild. He created art, nature. We learn from nature what to do with art. If we do, we know that in nature there's a principle of resurrection. Life keeps returning. But God himself did. He's the creator of nature. So that the best art will always convey something of the resurrection. Art is, grand, is God's grandchild. His child is nature. He's an artist. He made it. Artists continue that work. That's Dante's understanding of art. Um, so, and, and I mentioned last time that, remember, literature is the, only, is the only form of art in which we actually participate in what's going on in time. We do it in music, but without words. And words are cognitive. They go more directly to the mind. So it's in poet, poetry, these artists would claim, is the highest form of art. It can do more than all the other arts because it combines most of them. Um, if you read um, most other kinds of knowledge, you know that it's knowledge about things. Literature is um, an experience of them. It takes us through. That's why it's so important to read because we actually participate in it. And you know that Knowing about something is not the same thing as experiencing it. We can know forgiveness in our heads. To actually experience it changes us.
It seems to me it makes us more capable of being forgiving ourselves. We can know about guilt, contrition, forgiveness. You know, whatever emotion we're going to talk about, we can know about it. Making it a part of us requires that we participate in it. It becomes a part of our own experiences. So literature takes us into that world, it deepens us. Um, that's one of the great themes of Wintersdale. We talked about the regimes, the masculine, feminine, I don't want to go into it. The function of autolycus is what I want to get to. And my question last week is, is there a providential action? Is the resolution that we experience at the end the result of just what humans do? Or are the gods involved? Is the outcome the result of something the gods are doing? Is that purely the effect of what human planning, what they do to themselves? And the resurrection scene at the end. And the, one of the last questions that I want to put to you um, is, um, remember the oracle said, and, and let me stop here, remind you too. We know the God, even though we didn't see the gods up until the courtroom scene, right? Nowhere, no mention about the gods. But in the courtroom scene, the embassy comes back and informs everybody of what the oracle is. It's, it's a sealed envelope. And the gods say, Leontes is a tyrant, Hermione is innocent, Camille a, lo a loyal subject. Um, um, I can't remember what else, but um, he, Leontes will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. The word perdita means that which is lost. There can be no resolution at the end of the play until that which is lost is found. She finally comes back, she's returned, and we know then that both kingdoms will flourish. There will be an heir for both kingdoms. So Sicily comes out of that death, like that winter condition, into a spring. There will be new life, continuity. So, but I, but I asked the question, and I want to ask it again when we get to the end here before we leave. Perdita is Perdita. She's a person. But symbolically, is she more? What else has been found that was lost? He, he, he will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. Is it just the recovery of her as a person, or does something else return to him that's sim symbolized through her? Was anything else recovered that's essential for the continuation, the recovery, the, the resurrection, the renewal of this regime? Those are the sort of basic questions that that I wanted to look at at the end. So can we turn to the end of Winter's Tale? Let me just read the end, um, the, the last passages. Um, but I want to read them in the context of things that had happened earlier. But my, my focus will be on the end. I'm going to look at two, Act 2, Scene 1, Line 95, it's on page 27. This is the scene in which Leontes comes to his wife, tells the lords to take his son away, because he doesn't want him to be present to what's about to happen, and then he confronts her with adultery, and she says, on page 27, 105, there's some ill planet reigns, I must be patient, till the heavens look with an aspect more favorable. Good, my lords, I am not prone to weeping, she said, um, but I have that honorable grief lodged here, which burns worse than tears drown. Beseech you all, my lords, with thoughts so qualified as your charity shall best instruct you. Measure me, look at me. And so the king's will be performed. She gives herself, 
It's an act of stunning faith to me. She gives herself trusting that the gods will bring something out of it. One of the most remarkable passages in all the literature that I know. Leontes doesn't like the fact that she's getting attention. He says, shall I be heard? She says, who is it that goes with me? Beseech your highness. My women may be with me, for you see my plight requires it. Do not weep, good fools. There is no cause. When you shall know your mistress has deserved prison, then abound in tears. She will not cry, which is extraordinary. As I have come out, this, uh, this action I now go on is for my better grace. And this is as close to martyrdom as I've ever known. She gives herself to it. She, she believes that a grace will come out of this. She will suffer something. She gives herself to that right now. Adieu, my Lord. I never wished to see you sorry. Now I trust I shall. My women come. You have leave. She is almost more concerned for what's happening to him, that it's not good than she is for herself. Um, hold on to that. Um, she carries that same spirit into the trial scene. Her words are just as remarkable then. Um, and then she finally says, let the will of the gods be done. Read the oracle and you remember what happened. Leontes refuses to accept it. And the, the very next instant, a messenger comes saying that his son dies. And um, it's at that point that her, Hermione collapses, I think, under the weight of this ordeal. She falls to the ground and faints. And then she's carried off, and you know that moments later, per, um, Paulina comes saying. Um, I don't want to go over the lines of Paulina, but just to recall them for a moment again, remember um, when they carry Hermione off, Paulina comes back a moment later, and she is scathing. She's, what torments will I suffer? She, she lists these awful torments. None of them will compare to what she's about to suffer when she announces what's happened. And she says, the queen, the queen is dead. Um, and Leontes is grief-stricken, just absolutely grief-stricken. It's the first time, and then he acknowledges all the wrong that he's done. So he knew them all along. He wasn't, he wasn't cunning like Iago. He had lost it. Uh, but, but he admits them, he sees, reason comes alive again, he sees, acknowledges. From that point on, he submits himself to Pauline. He's a king. The one thing he has to learn is obedience. Bef Shakespeare shows again and again and again, before somebody can rule well, they have to learn to serve. That's a rule, fundamental rule. And, and just along those lines, to make this point, rem remember at the end of the play, when Shakespeare switches from um, um, Bohemia back to Sicily, just for a scene, Paulina's engaging the lords and telling them, you're the ones who are keeping them going because all the lords are saying, get married, get married. It's the masculine intellect. It's practical, it's efficient. It wants to get things done. It's the women who say, hold on. The women wait, they're waiting on the gods. She's the one who says, um, you promised to not marry until I gave you your consent. He cannot come out of that penance on his own. I hope that's clear. The women are waiting on the gods. They can't do what they're given to do until it's some sign is given to them. I mean, it's amazing to watch the difference between the men and women. The men are to want to get things done. All the, all the statesmen are saying, you've got to do this for the sake of the state. Who wouldn't do that? You know, you've got the state at stake. Um, the women are saying no, because they're waiting on the outcome of the oracle. Their actions are completely governed by faith. They can't do anything until the heavens... Show themselves. Wait, Mark, wait. So, so she's the one who's waiting, 
And I just want to reinforce this. He cannot come out of that penance on his own. Why? Because the issue here is he never learned to use his will well anyway. It, it's not until he learns to give his will completely that he will be a good ruler. Because he, ha he has to learn how to serve. Shakespeare shows that again and again in, in all of his works. Until a person learns to give up their will, in, in this case it's to Paulina who's giving her will to the gods, he will never be able to do what's best. So we're watching this long winter's tale play out and then finally you know what happens because of the the quarrel between Florizel and Polixenes, when Florizel refuses to ask his father and then he takes off his disguise and says, um, divorce now. Um, he is so angry at his son um, that, that Florizel and Perdita have to flee. And it's Camille who comes up with this plan to say, Leontes has wanted me back. This is an occasion for me to return home. I can persuade Leontes to, um, to speak on your behalf when Polixenes comes. So it looks like everything will be okay. okay? So that's where we are at the end. Perdita and Florizo come. A messenger comes saying that Polixenes is following and he's furious. His son has lied. Remember, and that's where Leontes, because his heart is softened, knows he can speak on Florizel's behalf. And, and the interesting thing, sorry, I'm going through this so quickly, there's a lot to cover here, but the interesting thing that happens is this, and you probably wouldn't even notice it. Camilo persuades Florizel and Perdita to flee. They come to Sicily, they arrive. When they arrive, we get the reunion described in a narrative. Take a look at, this is really, this is really interesting, this is the mark of a genius. I think it's 5-2. Yeah, look at 5-2, page 105. Um, it looks like Florizel and Perdita are going to be in real trouble because a messenger has just come saying the, the son fled and he's lying. So they have to be honest and everything comes out. And then look on page 105. Um, we get everything, look, just thumb through the next few pages, look at it. It's all a narrative on the part of these lords who are describing what happened in the reconciliation when Perdita comes before her father and he realizes for the first time that this is his long lost daughter. Now why didn't Shakespeare, why did he deliver this through a narrative instead of immediately in a drama? Is the question clear? Every scene has been a scene staged in a, in a, right in front of us, immediately. In this scene, it's told to us. It's not present. We get it through somebody. Somebody's telling a story, just like Ishmael. We're in a narrative world for, for five minutes here. Why did Shakespeare do that? This is a sign of his genius. If he performed it, this, this reconciliation, daughter and father coming together, and the son of his best friend, who will now, you know, they've been estranged forever and now they will come together. So all of these bitter feelings and resentments are put away. This is a moment of reconciliation. Families come together, friends come together. What would have happened if he had dramatized that and then given us the chapel scene? Well, am I, if I'm misreading this. Would have been, the chapel scene would have been sort of anticlimactic. Wouldn't it? I mean, it would have lost its weight. I hope that's clear. 
if we had seen it, that would have been such an intense moment, such an intense moment. If he'd juxtaposed it with another one, the question is, would it have, would it have had the impact? He tells us this so that we know about it. We know it's there. But we're going, here's this participation thing that I keep hammering. But we experience the chapel scene. And he's prepared us for it. If he put the two of them together, it seems to me there would have been a real question of how much, I mean, it's, it's how much human emotions can bear, you know, the, the way he manages his craft. So we learned that everything's reconciled, and now we go to the chapel scene. Can you, can you turn there just for a moment? And I just want to read this and then um, ask these final questions that I have, see what you guys make of this. Act 5, scene 3. They enter the chapel um, about line 10, 12, 15 in there or something. They enter the chapel and there's a sense of something liturgical. I, I can't think of a better word. There's a quiet and a reverence to the setting. It's like we've entered a sacred space. This is a chapel. We're outside of that. We've entered another space. Um, Leonte says, Oh, Pauline, <clears throat> we honor you with trouble. But we came to see the statue of our queen, your gallery, have we passed through, not without much content and many singularities. But we saw not that which my daughter came to look upon, the statue of her mother, Alina. Has she lived peerless, so her dead likeness, I do well believe, excels whatever yet you looked upon, or hand of man hath done. Therefore I keep it lonely apart. She has to justify what she's done. Shakespeare covers everything. Prepare to see the life as, li as lively, mocked as ever, still sleep mocked death. Behold and say it as well. This is art mocking nature. Yeah? Put it, um, mimesis, imitation. Remember, art imitates nature. So what we're getting right now is an art mim mimicking, imitating nature. That is in some ways, what he's talking about is exactly what he does with us. I hope that's clear. Right? We've been reading this thing when we saw the film. It was a, it was a performance mocking performance copying nature, and we entered into it. Not ideas, we're not in thought, we're participating in an action. Art is mocking nature. It's Behold, and say tis well, Paulina reveals Hermione, standing like a statue, I like your science. It's her. It the more shows off your wonder, but yet speak. First you, my liege, comes it not something near? <laughs> this uh, I've got all this together. <laughs> From here on out, it's just, it's always hard. I can't, I can't watch this without, it's just, to me, it's so extraordinary. Her natural posture chide me, dear stone, that I may indeed, thou art Hermione, or rather thou art she in, my not, in thy not chiding. For she was as tender as infancy and grace, but yet Paulina, Hermione, was not so much wrinkled. Strange. <laughs> She's aged. <laughs> And Pauline's got to justify this, oh, not by much. So much the more are Carver's excellence, the artist, which let go by some 16 years and makes her as she lived now. Art has to, we've said this from the beginning, art carries the past with it and transforms it as it go. 
Homer did that. Virgil did it with Homer. Dante did it with Virgil. Shakespeare's doing it with everybody. Remember, out of the Plato's cave. Can the artist show things as they are and bring them into a new life and see the eternal things? As now she might have done so much to my good comfort as it is now piercing to my soul, oh, thus she stood even with such life of majesty, warm life, as now coldly stands when first I wooed her, I am ashamed. Does not the stone rebuke me for being more stone-like? He wants to embrace it. I mean, he has to do everything he can to hold back. O royal peace, there's magic in thy mystery, which has my evils conjured to remembrance, and from thy admiring daughter took the spirit, standing like stone with her. She says, give me leave, I'll do more. Everybody gets a little bit unnerved. Um, Go down a few lines about line 60. Polixene says, masterly done, the very life seems warm upon her lip. The fixture of her eye has motion in it, as we are mocked with art. There it is again. I'll draw the curtain. She says, it's overcoming. Isn't that true? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming all of you. Isn't it true for most of us or all of us that we're in a good movie, that we get so wrapped up it we can cry? I mean, we are just really good movies move us. It's like we're so involved in them. We, be, we become a part of their life. They become a part of our life. Um, oh, sweet Paulina, make me th- to think so 20 years together. No settled senses of the world can match the pleasure of that madness. Let's alone. I'm sorry, sir, I've thus far stirred you, but I could afflict you farther. Do, Paulina, for this affliction has a, t- God. Has a taste as sweet as any cordial comfort. Still me thinks there's an air comes from her. What fine chisel could ever yet cut breath? Let no man mock me, for I will kiss her. Good, my lord, for, forbear the readiness. She says it's wet. Shall I draw the curtain? No, not these twenty years. So long could I stand by a looker on. And now a condition is set. Either forbear, quit presently the chapel, or resolve you for more amazement. Now think about what I've been saying about art for a moment. The work of the spirit in time. If if at the center of our faith is a death and resurrection, and art is called on to imitate nature, no art will really complete itself, according to our faith, unless it has in it a principle of renewal, a resurrection in itself, to bring us out of this evil that's a part of our lives. She says, forbear, quit, or resolve yourself for more amazement. To go on means an act of belief on our part. If you can behold it, I'll make the statue move indeed, descend and take you by the hand. But then you'll think, which I protest against, I am assisted by wicked powers. Serious question, if you read The Tempest and another play, because we know artists can do bad things. Plato knew it. Not all art is good. Lots of art traps us in the cave. So she's, she's, it's a question whether to proceed, because what she's doing may be wicked. What you can make her do, do I am content to look on. What to speak, I am content to hear. For tis as easy to make her speak as move. This is like Christ saying, remember when he healed and the Pharisees got really angry and said, how can you do that? And he said, it's as easy to do this as forgive sin. And then he heals the person, the person gets up. Paulina, it is required you do awake your faith and all stand still. Or those that think it is unlawful business, I am about, let them depart. Leontes, proceed. 
of which I'll stir music always under moments like this, always in Shakespeare. When these moments come, there's always a backdrop of music. Why? It's the harmony that's natural to the human soul in moments of grace. Um, Tis time, descend, be stone, no more, approach, strike all that look upon with marvel, come, I'll fill your grave up, it's overcoming death. Stir nay, come away, bequeath to death your numbness, for from him dear life redeems you, you perceive she stirs, Hermione descends, start not, her action shall be holy, as you hear my spell is lawful, do not shun her until you see her die again, for then you kill her double. Nay, present your hand. When she was young, you wooed her. Now in age, is she become the suitor? Oh, she's warm. If this be magic, let it be an art. Lawful is eating. She embraces him. You remember the movie, She Hugs Him, um, the two embrace. Um, Perdita goes down, already went down on her knees, this is her mother, and then Hermione looks at her daughter, she's been waiting 16 years, wondering if she would ever see, now think about the courage, the America, what an instant machine, instant gratification, put it in a quarter, you get it out, expectation, we want something, all you have to do is work for it yourself, everything in this play comes not because somebody deserves it or works for it, it is waiting for the gods to have their will. Hermione has been waiting for 16 years, wondering, hoping that the gods would, that's, that they're trusting that, that what the gods implied in that oracle will come about. She looks at her daughter, her daughter's kneeling, they reconcile, so the daughter that she, she gave birth to 16 years earlier, that was cast away, is now here. So that which was lost is found. This is a moment when um, all the disharmonies are overcome, the people are reconciled. This, in Dante's term, is a paradisal moment. It's a moment of absolute forgiveness. Everybody is joined again. Hermione, you remember what she said too, the gods looked down, earlier, the gods looked down on this. Um, this is for, what she said, this is for my better faith, this is, huh? This is for my better grace, remember? She know, she believes that the gods are at work. She knows that human evil can do things. She's trusting in the gods at this moment. And now here at the end she says, You gods look down and from your sacred vials pour your graces upon my daughter's head. Tell me, mine own, where hast thou been preserved? Where lived? How found? All that she wants to know, natural, because she's, she's, she's in the dark. She knows nothing. For thou shalt hear that I, knowing by Paulina that the oracle gave hope, it did not give certainty. It did not say, if you do this, this will happen. There was a hope implied of it, and on the basis of that hope, these two women did what they did. For thou shalt hear that I, knowing by Paulina that the oracle gave hope, thou wast in being, have preserved myself to see the issue. I have stayed alive for this day. Paulina says, there's time enough. This is funny. Um, <laughs> She says she wants to go off and cry and try to put everything together. She goes, she goes on and on. Let me read it. There's time enough for that, lest they desire upon this push to trouble your joys with like relation. Go together, you precious winners all. She's done her job. Now she'll go off. Um, your precious winners all, your exaltation, partake to everyone. 
I, an old turtle, will wing me to some withered bough, and there my mate that's never be to, to be found again, lament till I am lost. <laughs> In the goodness of his heart, oh, peace, Paulina, thou should a husband take by my, that is, here's Camilo, you're two good people, join, and so it's a moment of a comedy, it's a moment of romance where a pair, where a paradisal forgiveness is shared by everybody. They enter into it, and to me it's the most perfect resolution of any Shakespeare play I know. Now here's my, here's my question. Here's, what Shakespeare's showing us about art, is this, are we just meant to see that this is simply um, Paulina having cloistered um, Hermione um, to, to keep her alive while they await the outcome of the oracle because they don't know. They, they can't have the certainty that all humans want. They have to wait to hope. Is, is this just um, a fanciful way of presenting the reconciliation? Or is Shakespeare um, helping us to see something about the importance of art, how important it is for whatever we do in our lives? That's the first question, and the other is, is there a providential action? Have the gods been at work, or is this all the result of human effort? But take the first one. Let's see, what do you make? Carl, what do you make of this, the art? Sometimes you just have to wait for things to happen. But the art, I mean, related to the art, what is, the, is, he, is this, he, I think what I'm saying, he could have done this another way. She could have just been there. She could have drawn the curtain and she could have come out. But there's, there's this elaborate, formal, almost liturgical ceremony of a, of a resurrection moment. She comes out of this thing. He could have done it another way. Why did he do it this way? Is there something here to learn about art? And I'm putting that now, trusting that all of you, you're still here. I mean, I'm surprised sometimes. We've been together for a year, some of us. And what you've been doing is reading art. Why are you here? Candy, why are you here? What is, this, what is he doing? What is he? Is something going on with art, or is this just coincidence? You just get an emotional feeling with the. the I don't know. They just all came together, and they were all separated. It's like you said. It's an experience. It's something that you feel. I don't know. <laughs> Karen, you. Let's. How different would, have, would it have been in a narrative? I mean, go back to the preceding scene where the Lord's described the reconciliation between. If we'd gotten the chapel scene told, would it have been the same? Not as effective. How? Why not? What would be lost? Some of the emotion. Hmm? There's more drama to it. It's, it's a first-person exchange instead of a, yeah. a second-person or, or a hearsay exchange. Mm -hmm. so. That always has more drama, more impact, more effect. Because we're, we're more... There's not a mediation between us, a storyteller. It's immediate. It's a part of us. It's, it's like today. If you see, in a, in a detective series or something, you see someone actually shoot another person. That's different than... Hearing the, reading the police report, or right. hearing them right. telling court or something right. like that. I mean, it's very graphic, and it's quite 
shocking. Right. Yes, this is visual. Hmm? It's words, but it's visual. Mm -hmm. The words create, you can see it happen in your mind. Except, we're, yeah, I'm reading it, so it's words. But in the performance, in a stage performance, it's not just words that are visual. We're no. actually, the actions are immediate. That's, I mean, don't, immediate means no mediation. We're a part of it. In a, in a narrative, or as Carl was saying, it's very different when you get a report about something. Because it removes us from it. We get it in words. In a drama, it's immediate. There's nothing between us. We're a part of that action. So we participate in it more directly. Yeah. Um, the nobles were telling the story, I, I felt extremely cheated. <laughs> I know, right? Because of the wonderfulness that Shakespeare can write. Yeah, right. And then we just, this whole play climaxes in this one spot, and then, oh yeah. This yeah. is what happened. And it's like yeah, you're yeah, halfway through a murder mystery and he walks by and goes, yeah, the bubble, Yeah. But I... That's a negative way. But you're right. You're right. I wouldn't put it quite that strongly, but you're right. But I, but I go back to what I said before. I think if he had, it would have lost some of the effect at the end. And, and for this play, the most important thing to hold on to here is, is the way in which art helps us to participate, to participate in a resurrection moment. A moment of forgiveness becomes a part of us. Not something told, something actually experienced. The um, other thing, too, I think, is that um, he sees her as still the young, beautiful thing in his mind. And yet, if this had not been a statue to bring her forth as an older person, mm -hmm. I think would have been... It wouldn't have been as beautiful, mm -hmm. but to see her as a statue, thinking she's not alive, but she's up there and he's looking. She's at got her. wrinkles. And she's got wrinkles. Yeah. He's sort of buying into it. What, what would it say? I mean, I really like that. What What would it say if she were without the wrinkles? What What would it say about art? It would be fake. Oh, I'm going to say idealized. That it left her in a beautiful state. That is, an art can idealize something, and you can be left in an idealized mm -hmm. work of art. And remember we talked about the difference between Shakespeare's sonnet and Plutarch's? That, that Plutarch tended to idealize the woman. And sh remember that Shakespearean sonnet that I read? If my, you know, my, my beloved has wires for hair and you know, done for breasts. And, um, you can leave somebody in an idea. That is... Part of what's going on at the ending is a critique of art, and what, and I think what I, that what art has to do, if 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 a if a culture is to be able to renew itself, it has to have an art that will do this. Because if it's if it cheapens it, if it if it doesn't get us to the resurrection or idealizes it, it will miss that Aristotelian mean that where Christ is, you know, in art. How many art? How many artists do this? I've been you know, hammering this since the beginning, but this whole the importance of really good art for us, what it means for us. Let me take the second question. Is there a providential action going on? Is this all the result of human planning? To me, it reminds me of the, sta the, the biblical story of David and Bathsheba because David, you know, sinned and he lost his connection with God. And the same thing with the king. 
he was against the wife, he sinned, he put her away, he lost his son, and then through all of this staying with it and going to her grave, it's like David repenting and saying to God, I am so sorry, yeah. I, yeah. I shouldn't have done this, yeah. and the king is doing this. So in the end, he gets his faith back, his, he's connected again with God in a certain way. Does I mean good? I want to come back to this question. I don't want to leave it right now. But does perdita mean anything for you then? I mean, what is perdita? That which is lost is something more found than just her person at this time. Well, that's the the whole time of repenting because she's gone and then she comes back. So to me, I see that as a return to his faith that that she plays a part in 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 his suffering because she's gone and he doesn't know where she is. I don't Doc, know. what do you make of that, Perdita? That which is lost is found. When she's returned, is it just her as a person or in terms of the action of the play, the whole action? Well, everything, I mean, except for, um, except for the, sorry, I've lost his name, the guy killed by the bear. Um, everybody is, Everything about the whole kingdom is returned. As you said, there's an heir to each kingdom. The friendship is returned. Um, the marriage is returned. The daughter is returned. Um, the reconciliation with the gods. He does everything. everything. Well, everything Are you thinking of the prodigal yeah. son who leaves? Leaves home and then the prodigal son, he returns back to the home. Is that a part of that? Yeah, and, I'm, and I, all I would add, I mean, to Suzanne's what adding to, to what you're saying, is that there's this fullness of life. It's everything. It's, it's not just faith, because the faith brought it there. It's the fruit of it, that faith, that there is everything in abundance. Um, all of it in joy. If, if we were to project this, try to project it forward into heaven, Whatever Paul says, I have not seen here, you know, and in the transfiguration, he's, you know, we don't know what it's going to look like. It's going to be far more splendid than we do. There has to be this great fullness of life. Because this is the God of, not the God of the dead, this is the God of the living. It means whatever is given back will be a thousandfold or in its fullness or beyond our imagining. So it seems to me that that which, that which is lost till that which is lost is found, the fruit of the faith will be that great plenitude, that fullness of life that's for those who love that way. But we have to go through repentance yes, and yes, yes, say yes, we're sorry yes, to get to that point. Yes, and, and if we take Leon, and Pauline is so good. I mean, the difference between them is really instructive. He can't come out of this on his own. He, he has to learn to give his will for something other than his own will. It can't be up to him. It has to be up to Paulina, and it's not up to her. It's up to the God she's waiting on. So there's a wonderful, mm, I don't know what to call it. I hate using the word lesson, but, but, but it's so clear that the cost of it is the penance and the sorrow that... that he, he really look at his sins and come to terms with them to feel contrite, sorry, for him to feel the full force of the forgiveness offered him at the end. Yeah. And, and the fullness of life that comes to him.
but how do you reconcile the fact that you lied to the king for 16 years and was the sole person who said, I'm going to decide that it's okay? She, she, no, she didn't. She didn't. Well, I mean, you can say she lied. I'll let you, I'll let you struggle with that. She did. And I mean, the that, that's horrible. Well, you may say it's horrible. <laughs> I think the, the, if we're reading the story for the story, we have to say there's a wisdom in it. She's, by the way, remember this, I'm just... She's putting herself as the judge. No, she's not. No, she's putting herself under the gods. She, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, because I've got one more thing to do. She's putting herself under the gods. Both women are doing that, so the cost of both of them is great. By the way, I want to remind, because I've, I've had students in my classes question this thing about Odysseus lies to Athena. Remember when he comes home and there's, I think I went over that moment. Because lying is bad. Odysseus is a great hero here, Paulina lies. There's that passage in Paul where Paul says, I don't hold myself accountable by human standards. He does not measure himself by what humans do because it's clear to him that God is doing things that his mind, his mind can't understand. And if things got reduced to the level of his intellect, he would not have been able to do what he does. But, but let me leave that here, I want because we've got to go. A divine action or not, let me read this quickly. Hermione says, my action for a bit of grace, the oracle makes clear the gods are involved. So it's really clear that nothing in this play is going to happen without their involvement, even if we don't see it. Antigonus's dream of Hermione, the, you know, the, the water flowing from the eyes that are almost dreadful. There's a sense of dread. Um, the clown talks about the bear having the body for dinner. It's that we, we've shifted from a tragic world into a comic world when the, when the clown says he's still eating dinner. You don't talk about death that way, but it's Shakespeare's way of showing we have to enlarge our ways of looking at things because we've entered into another world. That whole tragic way has to enlarge to make room for other things. We can't stay in that world and we shift to Bohemia. When Camilo makes his plan, plan Florizel says, almost a miracle. They, have, they don't have the clothes to pull it off and Attilicus is handy. He just happens to be there, he's there. But that isn't, that isn't all. Camilla says, make an instrument of this man. I will use this man. That, that is, I'll, let me put it in a better way. I'll take advantage of what's offered me here. I'll make use of it. Perdita says, I must play a part in this, as if a stage play were being performed and somebody were... So Shakespeare's using all these metaphors that something else is unfolding and and it's greater than what anybody sees. Autolycus says, the unjust man must proper thrive. He says he can't do anything but lie. And suddenly, when he makes all these moves, he's rewarded for it. Remember, he's telling lies, and the, and the shepherd, the father, is giving him money. He said, this is a strange world when, when I get rewarded for telling lies. Mark, there's your, I mean, make, make room for this. Because what Shakespeare's showing us is that God works with everything. That's right. Not just the good. He's taking bad. And the interesting thing here, Autolycus says, um, if I had a mind to be honest, fortune wouldn't let me. Because everything is conspiring to make things better for him. He's, he's going to be turned into a gentleman. And he doesn't have to do anything. All he has to do is keep being a rogue. 
So what Shakespeare is showing us is that something's happening. The good things are happening to bad people when they don't even don't even have to be bad to get the rewards of it. So uh, what we're seeing is a grace is moving. Something's happening that's, that's at work with the choices that humans make. So what Shakespeare's doing is protecting everybody's free will while something greater is going on. Now remember out of the cave. Remember, Socrates comes out, Christ comes in. And the question, the challenge that Plato posed to everybody, the poet says, can you render the world as it appears to our senses and still show that divine reality outside? Now think of what it took for Shakespeare to do this, what I'm talking about. To, to render what is before us, as it, it's just as if it's unfolding right before I, and not Because how many of us when we're watching this think about these things? Nobody's going to think, I came to these after readings and readings. You just, you know, when we read it, these things are happening. But this is a clown. I, that's why when we watched the movie, I thought, I wonder how many people are taking this seriously because we've got this very serious first part of the play and then what looks like a boring second half. But the amazing thing is it's while this boring thing is going on that almost all the important things are happening to get us back to this moment. They give Autologus to, and he, point, he points them towards the ship so that they're going to the ship. And finally, Paulina resists. Remember, in the next, at the very end, before we get to the end here, Paulina's confronting the lords when they're saying, marry. And she says, do not marry. The providence will provide an heir. That on her end, she's doing what has to be done without even knowing what's unfolding in Bohemia. So Shakespeare's showing us that all these things are happening, moving us toward an end, with everybody playing their part doing what they should be doing, or what they are doing, towards this amazing end. So, when we talk about the role of art, in the terms in which we've been talking about it, you know, the, the subtitle of this whole thing, Where is Christ, Where We Least Expect to Find Him? When we read these really great plays, you know, we take these things seriously, we're seeing amazing things. Um, so... Let's leave it here. Sorry, I think did that I make it? Shakespeare really knew his Bible because oh. look at Jesus. He he dealt with all the people that that were bad and and Shakespeare he knew puts in someone bad that comes out good. Shakespeare knew the classical world. There's nobody who knew the classical world better than Shakespeare except Dante. Those two people could not have done what they did if they had not known. Homer, Virgil, Plato, Aristotle, I mean that whole classical world that is lost to the modern mind. Yep. And the Bible. Alright. Thank you again. Bob, I hope your evening is more restful than oh, I Oh gosh. And I hope I, you have a, a good night's rest still, tonight. Alright, I'm still catching up. Uh, um, Did you enjoy Bill Yeah, but it was it was uh, about how literature did Shakespeare. Oh, he wrote a law library right. and we destroyed Richard A. Hospital. Yeah. Uh, didn't. 
but Billy Budd was one of the examples of it. Yeah. So he used to sit there and say, this is about law and order. Right. And he's writing because about law and how it affected things later on. So, but I, I, you brought that up, I just said that's interesting. The captain, verb, I can't remember the captain, the, but it was truth, um, had to obey the law because if he didn't, he would have he would have um, set a precedent for breaking at a time of a war. So law is very much out. But the thing I love about that story, I don't think you've got a copy at home. Go dig and look at the ending because one of the wonderful things about that is when Billy, the doctor at the end when he's talking about things, Billy Budd was just hung. And usually when men hang, their bowels. Yes. And, and Milda's description of Billy Budd is that he took the dawn. It's a Christ-like warrior picture. Because he goes to his death willingly, knowing that he has to, um, and that the captain Veer, Captain Veer, is doing the thing that he doesn't want to do but has to, he has to take along. And one of the one of the amazing signs of the miracle in the play is that he does his bouts don't go, and the doctor can't explain it. So there's uh, oh, read it, go look at it, go look at it. It's stunning. It's it's it relates to this that there is this miraculous thing going on. And most people don't even see yeah, it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I'll accept it. I, I it's a wonderful ending. ending so. It is a wonderful ending, but I don't think it would have been. I don't think there was anything that would have gone bad about it if he would have written the reconciliation part. <laughs> what reconciliation? Shakespeare. In, in winter. Sorry, I don't. I'm, I'm lost. The, where the gentlemen are talking about how everybody came back together and I, oh, oh. If he would have written that, it still would have been. I don't think so. I don't think so. The last part's only as good because there wasn't this record. It was a letdown, and you get to back up. But the, but the wonderful thing is, we see.